opening words this morning are a poem called Oh May I Join the Choir Invisible by George Eliot, also known as Marianne Evans, who wrote this in 1867. Oh, may I join the choir invisible of those immortal dead who live again in the minds made better by their presence. Live in pulses stirred to generosity, in deeds of daring rectitude, in scorn for miserable aims that end with self, in thoughts sublime that pierce the night like stars, and with their mild persistence urge man's search to vaster issues. So to live is heaven, to make undying music in the world, breathing as beauteous order that controls with growing sway the growing life of man. So we inherit that sweet purity for which we struggled, failed, and agonized with widening retrospect that breed despair. Rebellious flesh that would not be subdued, a vicious parent shaming still its child, poor, anxious, Penitence is quickly dissolved, its discords quenched by meeting harmonies, die in the large and charitable air, and all our rarer, better, truer self that sobbed religiously in yearning song, that watched to ease the burden of the world, laboriously tracing what must be and what may yet be better saw within a worthier image for the sanctuary and shaped it forth before the multitude, divinely human. Raising worship, so to higher reference, more mixed with love, that better self shall live till human time shall fold its eyelids and the human sky be gathered like a scroll within the tomb, unread forever. This is life to come, which martyred men have made more glorious for us who strive to follow. May I reach that purest heaven, be to other souls the cup of strength in some great agony. Enkindle generous ardor, feel pure love, beget the smiles that have no cruelty, be the sweet presence of a good diffused, and in diffusion evermore intense. So shall I join the choir invisible, whose music is the gladness of the world. It is my pleasure to welcome our speaker this morning, Randy Best, who is the leader of the North Carolina Ethical Society. He was born in St. Louis. He is a lifelong ethical culturist. He grew up attending the St. Louis Ethical Society, where his parents are still active members. He and his wife also homeschooled their children, isn't that right? Um, he received his BA uh, from Grinnell College and his master's degree from Harvard University. He is a, also a graduate of the Humanist Institute and a certified mediator and pastoral counselor. And I've had the 
delighted getting to know Randy at the National Leaders Council meetings, getting to know his wonderful sense of humor and his incredible dedication to our movement. And he is now also the president of the National Leaders Council, just elected a couple of months ago. So welcome, Randy. Thank you so much, Mary. Let's see if I can get this situated here. Well, it's a pleasure to be here again at WES and to see such a great turnout on such a beautiful day. That's quite some competition we have out there with the weather. My talk today is called my wake-up call for in late June of this year, I began questioning the meaning and purpose of my life. I revisited the idea of human consciousness and what it means to me. For some of you may know, last summer, I had my closest brush with death. I've described my accident to a few of you who I know, but I'm going to do so again because most of you haven't heard my story, and it continues to be therapeutic for me to tell it. Here's the short version. This past summer, while riding home on my regular bicycle commute, I was broadsided by a motorcycle. Fleshing it out with a little more detail, Wednesday, June 18th, was a beautiful, sunny day. The sky was that Carolina blue, as we like to say. At 5.40, I left work for my 25-minute commute home, and part of my route includes traveling on Cornwallis Road, a busy two-lane road with no shoulder and intermittently heavy traffic. And as I approached my traditional left turn on this road, there was no oncoming traffic. I looked over my left shoulder and saw a motorcycle about a block behind me. I thought, there's plenty of time. I only need to move 12 feet, and I'll be out of this lane. So I took control of the lane, signaled for my left turn, and turned. Immediately after I turned, though, my peripheral vision alarm went off. You may know the experience when something on the edge of your field of vision attracts your attention and your head snaps around to see what it is. What I saw was an extreme close-up of a motorcycle bearing down on me at high speed, making no effort to stop or swerve. And I thought that was the last thing that I would ever see. That is the last experience that I would ever have. For a split thought second, I thought that was all there would ever be for me. And then I felt the impact in the side of my chest and the, along the left side of my body. And I was flying through the air. Now this sensation of flight was unusual and brief. In a way, it was almost euphoric. Soaring through the air felt fantastic. But I imagine that my subconscious knowledge that I wasn't dead may have contributed to this feeling. And then I felt another impact as I bounced and slid on the road surface and came to rest on the grassy shoulder. My pain circuits were firing over time and my breath came in gasp as I struggled to breathe. And it was in this moment I had what, in retrospect, I think was a truly interesting experience. As I lay on my back trying to make sense of it all, my mind stepped up 
and pulled my body. My mind asked my body, can you move your neck? Yes, my body answered. Can you wiggle your fingers? Can you wiggle your toes? Yes, and yes, my body answered. Then we'll get through this, my mind concluded. Later, reflecting on this somewhat schizophrenic exchange between my mind and my body, I realized I had experienced dualism, the concept that the mind and the body are indeed separate things, what philosophers call the mind-body problem. I was surprised to experience this mind-body distinction because this separation of the mind and the body goes against my personal philosophy, my understanding of what and who I am. While I see my body as a distinct part of me, separate, let me try this again. While I see my mind as a distinct part of me, separate from, say, my arm, I do not see it as having its own existence independent of my body. I do not believe that I have a soul, and I don't believe that you do either. When my body dies, my mind, a part of my body, dies along with the rest of me. This does not mean that I do not consider my mind to be the most important part of me. My mind houses my thoughts, my personality, my distinctiveness, and it is critical in constituting what I see as me. I can lose parts of my body, but once my mind is gone, my biographical life ends. Without my mind, I am written out of the narrative that is my life. Brain death is death. So how do I reconcile my experience of a mind-body distinction with my philosophical materialist position, the position that my mind is an extension of my body, where chemical reactions form my experience of consciousness? Giving it a little more thought, I concluded that I really don't need to reconcile this distinction it all comes down to a matter of interpretation. I see my experience of mind-body separation as a perfectly natural part of my human experience. Our brains are designed to feel this mind-body separation. It can be useful, as it was, when I was pulling my body for functioning. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it reflects objective reality, no more than our hallucinations do. Yet many religions have taken this experience of mind-body separateness as indicating that there is, there is something that is us, that exists independently of our bodies and continues after our bodies are gone. And some religions refer to this as the soul. One of the results of this type of thinking is the idea that each of us has sacredness because our soul has this eternal connection. I like this concept that each of us is holy, special, unique unto ourselves. I share the concept that each of us is sacred, although I do so without the need for a soul. To quote the recently uh, released National Leaders Council statement on ethical culture, our faith is inspired and animated by the deliberate and reasoned choice of attributing worth and dignity to all imbued with a profound sense of interrelatedness. We recognize that we are both dependent and independent, each a unique end unto ourselves. 
We understand that if any one of us were different, life itself would be different. It is through this sense of ourselves as members of an organic whole that we reinforce the attribution of moral worth to every individual. It is in this way that I develop a sense of individual sacredness by natural means, by choice. It is a sense of the inviolability of each human personality. Each of us, every one of us, has the same rights and, and deserves a chance to develop to our full potential. A different result of this religious thinking about the soul that I take issue with is when this concept causes people to overly focus on the hereafter rather than the here and now. Historically, many disadvantaged people have put up with oppression because they felt that the afterlife would be better for them. In our world today, we see suicide bombers commit terrible acts because, in part, they have been told that they will be rewarded with eternal life in paradise. All objective evidence suggests that my consciousness is embodied permanently in my body, and I think that yours is too. But this makes our lives all the more precious, too precious to accept oppression or to take the lives of others. As you can obviously see, my body and my mind did make it through the aftermath of the accident. I had a collapsed lung, bruised spleen, seven broken ribs, six of them broken twice, a broken fibula at my ankle joint, three broken toes, and about a yard of road rash. I spent nine days in the hospital, six weeks recovering at home, and another three months of extremely low energy. I have ongoing physical therapy. I had a skin graft at the end of December that didn't work, and I'm figuring out where to go from there. Yet it is not so much the physical effects of the accident, but the mental one. Toward the end of September, when I resumed my platelet donations with the Red Cross, I described my accident to one of the nurses who I knew from past donations was a motorcycle enthusiast. I told her that the effect of my accident was to reboot my gratitude button. Her reply was, why do you think you needed such a slap in the face as a wake-up call? An interesting question. Why did I need such a wake-up call? I need to unpack this a little bit. One interpretation of her statement is that some force out there determined that I needed to get whacked to renew my appreciation for life. I don't think so. First of all, I don't believe that there is anything out there that is concerned with me in that way that controls what happens to me. Second, I think I was pretty appreciative to start with, although afterwards, in retrospect, uh, feeling that the accident could have left me so much worse off has heightened my gratitude, but at a very high price. The outpouring of support from friends and neighbors not only sustained me through my troubles, it uplifted me afterwards. Yes, for so much of our lives is about our relationships. It was the actions of others, the visits, the cards, bringing food, actions in the here and now that sustained me. 
I was sustained by my relationships with others. I reconnected with people that I hadn't been close to in years, yet they were there for me. And some of them have since faded back into the background of my life. I was visited by acquaintances that I don't know well, yet their visits brought me strength. Our relationships persist, even when we don't realize it. This past December, while I was selling my wife's pottery at the Durham Farmer's Market, several people who I had not seen since my accident came up to me and said that they were pleased to see me up and about again. Several of them said that I had been in their prayers. Being the subject of others' prayers used to be a problem for me. In my younger, more militant atheist days, I might have made a comment about the uselessness of prayer. But time and experience have mellowed me, well, somewhat anyway. Uh, while I don't believe that the prayers had any material effect on my recovery, I am now able to take a positive spin on being the subject of someone else's prayers. I believe that deliberative thought is generally a good thing, and prayer can be seen as a form of deliberative thought. Prayers may contain good wishes for someone else. These expressions of compassion and concern are also good things. Nowadays, my response to someone saying that they were concerned for me and included me in their prayers is more likely to be something along the lines of, I am grateful for your concern. Thank you. I realize that my accident may be trivial compared to what many of you have experienced, yet it's the only material that I have to work with, and in the end, it has been a growth experience for me. My recovery led me to thinking about how do we recover from life's crises? In particular, is there a model that applies to non-theists such as myself for coping with crises? I read Randy Pausch's The Last Lecture. Many of you may be familiar with this. It's also on the internet. And I found inspiration in this book. Facing his own death from cancer, he writes about the joy of living, striving, connecting to others, and living a life of purpose and meaning. His narrative is highly personal, and while it contains much wisdom, great anecdotes, and many valuable insights, it's not systematic, and it wasn't quite what I was looking for. Rooting around online, I encountered nine tips for making yourself feel better in a crisis from uh, an author named Gretchen Rubin who is working on something called the Happiness Project. While these tips did not exactly apply to my particular life crisis, they contain guidance that I find useful, so I'll share them with you. Gretchen Rubin's tips are, when something bad happens, how do you make yourself feel better? What can you do to lift your spirits? Tip one, remind yourself that it could be worse. Making a downward comparison by comparing your situation with the worst troubles of other people puts your problems into perspective. Remind yourself in many ways that you are fortunate. Tip two, remember your body. Take a 20-minute walk outside or boost your energy and to boost your energy and dissolve stress. Don't let yourself get too hungry. Get enough sleep. When you're anxious, it's very tempting to run yourself ragged trying to deal with the crisis but in the long run, you just wear yourself out. Tip four, one of the things I noticed about this list is that it jumps from tip two to tip four. 
Perhaps the third tip is don't worry about things adding up. Anyway, tip four, do something fun. Distract yourself from the stress and recharge your battery with an enjoyable activity. Be careful, however, not to treat yourself by doing something that's eventually going to make you feel worse, like taking up smoking again or drinking too much. Tip five, take action. If you're in a bad situation, take steps to bring about change. Change your behavior. Ask yourself, what exactly is the problem here? Take time to identify the problem, and often a possible solution presents itself. Tip six, look for meaning. Reframe an event to see the positive along with the negative. You don't need to be thankful that something bad has happened, but you can see that even a catastrophic event can have, to use a cliche, a silver lining. Tip seven, spend time with family and friends. Strong social relationships are a key to happiness, so fight the impulse to isolate yourself. Ask for help. Offer your help to others. Tip eight, make something better. If something in your life has gotten worse, try to make something else better. And it doesn't have to be something important. Clean a closet, organize your photographs, work in the yard. Tip nine, act toward other people the way you wish they'd act toward you. If you wish your friends to help you find someone to date, see if you can fix up a friend. If you wish people would help you find a job, see if you can help someone else find a job. If you can't think of a way to help someone you know, do something generous in a more impersonal way. Become an organ donor. Donate things you don't need anymore to charity. When you're feeling very low, it can be hard to muster the energy to help someone else. But you'll be amazed at how much better it can make you feel. So her wisdom consists of put things in perspective, take care of yourself, do something fun, take action, look for meaning, spend time with friends and family, make something better, and act toward other people the way you'd wish they'd act toward you. Some of these ideas resonate in my concept of ethical culture, and I think there's some good stuff here. But again, it really didn't seem to fit my situation, so I continued my quest for more. And eventually I found a great book that really resonated with me and my circumstances. It's called, I Will Not Be Broken, Five Steps to Over Overcoming a Life Crisis by Jerry White. Perhaps I should say that this book sort of found me. I discovered this book while browsing through the new releases section of my local library branch. The title intrigued me, so I checked it out. After reading it and accumulating a hefty fine, I decided to buy a copy. I was somewhat dismayed to find it in the self-help section of my local bookshop. I'm not much of a fan of the narcissistic self-help movement, but that's the subject of another platform. Uh, but I think this book transcends that classification. Jerry White is a leader in the international campaign to ban landmines, for which he is a co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, and that's quite a credential. He is also co-founder of Survivor Corps, for Jerry lost a leg to a landmine while camping in Israel in 1984 when he was 20 years old. 
after this personal tragedy, he started with the question, why do bad things happen? He found that this question was answered by silence. So he changed the question, and he asked, how, given that bad things happen, how do people absorb the blows and move through them? In seeking answers to this question, in talking to survivors who refused to see themselves as victims, a model emerged. You can't change the past. You can't change what happened to you. But you can change your attitude to what has happened. Jerry White's book is filled with inspirational stories, examples of accommodation to what is. I can't share the whole book with you, of course, but I will present his five steps to overcoming a life crisis. Step one, face facts. One must first accept the harsh reality about suffering and loss, however brutal. This terrible thing has happened. It can't be changed. I can't rewind the clock. But people still need me, so now what? Step two, choose life. That is, I want to say yes to the future. I want my life to go on in a positive way, although it may be limited. Seizing life, not surrendering to death and stagnation, requires letting go of resentments and looking forward, not back. It can be a daily decision. Step three, reach out. One must find peers, friends, and family to break the isolation and loneliness that comes in the aftermath of a crisis. Seek empathy, not pity, from people who have been through something similar. Let the people in your life into your life. It's up to me to reach for someone's hand. Step four, get moving. Sitting back gets you nowhere. One must get out of bed and out of the house to generate momentum. We have to take responsibility for our actions. How do I want to live the rest of my life? What steps can I take today? Step five, give back. Thriving, just not surviving, requires the capacity to give again through service and acts of kindness. How can I be an asset to those around me and not a drain? Will I ever feel grateful again? Yes, and by sharing your experience and talents, you will inspire others to do the same. So Jerry White's five steps are face facts, choose life, reach out, get moving, and give back. Not a simple formula to apply. Instead, they are focus areas at different points in coping with a crisis. Guideposts to get beyond and find a new normal. I am fortunate that the permanent effects of my accident will be minimal. This makes it easier for me to overcome the pitfalls of anger, resentment, and self-pity that are natural human responses to such an experience. Jerry White's model and his insights make a lot of sense to me. And I really like his last step, giving back. It reminds me of the ethical culture idea 
that the way to develop our best selves is through helping others, that our ethics of relationships are outward directed. The leader emeritus of the Baltimore Ethical Society, who many of you may know, Fritz Williams, summed it up this way. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in souls. I don't believe in prayer. And I don't believe in life after death. But there are things that I do believe in. I believe in connecting with our world and with life itself. I believe in participating in a caring and sharing community. And I believe in a life that is driven by a higher awareness of what a human life can be. I couldn't agree more with Fritz's statement. And I think that Randy Posh, Gretchen Rubin, and Jerry White would agree too. Thank you. For closing words, I have some parting advice. There has been much consternation in some quarters about who is affiliated with whom, where loyalties lie, and the viability of ethical culture as a national movement. I share these concerns and have my own strong opinions, but I'm going to keep them to myself today. For I don't think there's much to be gained by revisiting the past or attempting to place blame. I'm an advocate of going forward and seeing where that takes each of us on our journeys through our lives. For me, when going forward, I find it best to try to express my best self and thereby help others to a small degree express their best selves and find their uniqueness. I take inspiration from many sources, but the one that I'm going to share today is from that wise sage Theodore Gessel, also known as Dr. Seuss. He wrote about declaring your own uniqueness in his famous work, Happy Birthday to You. This passage also provides insight into Dr. Seuss's rather unique metaphysical perspective. If we didn't have birthdays, you wouldn't be you. If you'd never been born, well then what would you do? If you'd never been born, well then what would you be? You might be a fish or a toad in a tree. You might be a doorknob or three baked potatoes. You might be a bag full of hard green tomatoes. Or worse than all that, why, you might be a wasn't. A wasn't has no fun at all. No, he doesn't. A wasn't just isn't. He just isn't present. But you, you are you. And now isn't that pleasant? So we'll go to the top of the topest blue space. The official Katru birthday sounding off place. Come on, open your mouth and sound off to the sky. Shout loud at the top of your voice. I am I, me, I am I, and I may not know why, but I know that I like it. Three cheers, I am I. May we all, all of us, every one of us, work together to help us become our best selves.